The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think if it's attorney-client privilege, it would be a totally different matter and perhaps sure we'll go have an impartial observer but i think with executive privileges doesn't work in this scenario i'm benjamin wittis and this is the lawfare podcast september 7th 2022 monday afternoon a federal judge in florida acceded to donald trump's motion to appoint a special master to review privilege claims arising out of the mar-a-lago search The ruling was not a particular surprise, given that the judge had foreshadowed that it was coming, but it shocked observers nonetheless on a number of different bases. The decision raised questions of how it would affect the Justice Department's ongoing investigation of document retention at Mar-a-Lago. Would the department appeal? Would it seek a stay? And who could possibly serve as special master for such a task. Joining me before a live Twitter Spaces audience in the virtual Jungle Studio to discuss it all were Lawfare's executive editor, Natalie Orpet, Lawfare contributing editor, Jonathan Schaub, and Lawfare student contributor, Anna Bauer, who attended the hearing before Judge Cannon on behalf of the site. We talked about whether the opinion is quite as outlandish as many commentators seem to think. We talked about how the Justice Department would likely respond and whether it could just let it stand. We nominated our picks for Special Master, and we took questions from the audience. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 7th, about that Special Master ruling. So, Natalie, get us started and bring us up to speed. What is the chain of events that led to yesterday's order? Sure. Well, the process that got us here is actually pretty longstanding to take it back. So this all started in January of 2021 when the National Archives realized that it was missing some documents from uh, during uh, Trump's presidency and began sort of trying to figure out what was missing and ultimately sent a letter to the Trump team asking for documents to be sent back. There then followed many, many months of negotiations between the Trump team and the National Archives, during which some documents were returned to the archives, but some were not. 
in February of 2022, the National Archives sent a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, um, including on the basis of its having found classified documents among the records that were returned to the archives by the Trump team. DOJ then sent a letter to Trump's lawyers asking Trump to give voluntary access to the premises at Mar-a-Lago um, to look for additional documents that may still be missing. There then followed negotiations over that. Um, eventually, there was, um, after some negotiations and back and forth, DOJ filed uh, for a search war warrant, the, which was unknown to us at the time, um, until August 8th, when the FBI did conduct a search of Mar-a-Lago the warrant was unsealed on August 12th, and sort of importantly for setting the scene of how bizarre this entire proceeding is, all of this happened in a different court. Um, this was by a magistrate judge, Judge Reinhardt. This proceeding um, that led to the order this weekend um, was actually brought by Trump's team um, in a different court unrelated to the warrant itself, but was instead asking a different court, a different judge, to basically intervene in the criminal investigation that is going on um, and the aftermath of the warrant, the execution of the warrant on Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the Trump team was challenging what had happened and asking the court for the appointment of a special master to review the documents that had been seized by the FBI. Um, and to, to try to intervene on the basis of two possibilities for which the FBI allegedly should not be allowed to have or use these documents. Um, the first of which is um, attorney-client privilege. So documents that are subject to attorney-client privilege um, should not be used for investigative or prosecutorial purposes. Um, but there is in place already a privilege team, which is a very typical uh, move for the FBI and the Justice Department to take to make sure that an investigation is not the investigative team, meaning the lawyers and FBI agents who are conducting the criminal investigation are not given access to documents that they should not be seeing, be seeing because they're protected by attorney-client privilege. Um, so that's one category for which the Trump team was asking for a special master to be appointed to find those documents and make sure that they were adequately segregated away from the investigative team. Um, the second category, which um, we will definitely have our expert Jonathan Schaub speak about, is a claim of executive privilege. Um, so the Trump team is alleging that some of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago may be subject to executive privilege and therefore are not properly used for investigation or prosecution um, and should therefore be removed by a special master. Anna, I want to ask you how, if at all, surprised were you by the decision given the the hearing that you uh, went to on Thursday? You know, I was not surprised at all. I think that it became clear at the hearing that Judge Cannon favored the Trump team's arguments. You know, on one side, when the government presented their arguments, 
She tended to interrupt more and, and spoke with a more critical tone. For example, she told Jay Brad at one point that he was putting the cart before the horse. And, you know, she told Julie Edelstein that she was potentially overreading the Nixon case. And then, you know, on the other side, the questions that she asked of Trump's team seemed kind of more like softball questions and clarifying questions. I kind of had some hope that for potentially some of those clarifying questions were her areas of concern. But reading the opinion that was issued yesterday, in retrospect, it, it seems that actually some of those questions were effectively Judge Cannon doing some of the Trump team's lawyering for them. So she had to press them to say that they did want the special master to look at executive privilege in addition to attorney-client privilege. She had to press them to make any kind of argument about irreparable injury under the Ritchie factors. And, and then also, you know, she had to prod them to uh, about whether or not they wanted her to issue an injunction. So kind of looking at those questions in retrospect, it's, it's really not surprising that she issued the order that she did yesterday. But it, it's still reading it is you can't help but be a little bit shocked that that she did go as far as she did. Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, what aspects of the opinion are shocking to you? I, I mean, we've seen special masters appointed in the past to resolve privilege questions. What is the feature of this uh, opinion that strikes you as, or feature or features that strike you as anomalous? Uh, well, I certainly think that the fact that it, it seems that she has not restricted the special master review to attorney-client privilege, which the government's arguments made clear that in the past, you know, often special masters are are brought in with attorney-client privilege and, and the executive privilege arguments, which I, I believe Jonathan's going to address. But that is just shocking that she really didn't even seem to address the executive privilege uh, issues that are just an absolute like gaping hole in the Trump team's arguments. So I think that that's shocking, but there's also a few other things. I think that the kind of reputational risk that she notes about irreparable injury under the Ritchie factors is is something that is also shocking as well you know, that is something that I, I don't think is supported by precedent. And it's also important to note that there has been no accusation yet. This is pre-indictment. So the fact that she is pointing to a potential threat of prosecution as irreparable injury, it's it's really just surprising. Um, so I think that those are a few, there's other things as well, but I think that those are the two things that I would point out that I, I find to be two of the more shocking parts of the opinion. Yeah, so I will just add one to that, which is that she seems to elide the government's argument that at least those documents seized, which are government documents, he doesn't have an ownership interest in, and he doesn't have it's not clear how you would review those or why you would contemplate a Rule 41G motion for the return of material that he doesn't, wasn't in rightful possession of in the first place. 
So Jonathan, I'm, I'm, before we go to the executive privilege components, um, particularly, I want to ask you about your reaction to the opinion. To what extent were you surprised by it? And I hate to load the dice with the question this way, but how obviously wrong do you think it is? <laughs> uh, well, it's, you know, I think the judge foreshadowed a little bit uh, the inclination. So I think it wasn't totally shocking, although I kind of expected, I guess, because I still you know, somewhat believe in the rule of law and precedent and that judges buy good arguments that after she read DOJ's brief and sort of thought about the issues more closely or researched them, that, that she might reconsider the approach that she chose she did not. So uh, she went sort of full bore. We're going to have this sort of unprecedented, not only kind of action, right, that this allows the court to exercise this equity jurisdiction pre-indictment, but also to go the route of appointing a special master for executive privilege is just a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of privilege. So I, I think there are numerous grounds on which to contest the opinion and there's a lot of grounds on which it's sort of breaking new law and not following sort of existing precedent but of course i'm the most interested in the, the privilege aspect of it and and that is to me just a complete misunderstanding of the nature of executive privilege right so let's talk about that it seems to me that a lot of the people who are criticizing the opinion on executive privilege grounds are actually also misunderstanding the privilege in the sense that a lot of the criticism has been, well, Biden controls the privilege, not Trump, which seems to me to miss a step, which is the essential step that the executive branch has no privilege in a criminal matter against the executive branch at all. And so I'm, I'm interested for your sense of, you know, breaking this down for people who don't, you know, follow this stuff for a living. What did she do on executive privilege? And am I right that it is actually analytically incoherent for the reason that I just described? Yeah, so, I mean, she basically reasoned from these precedents that are uh, special master appointments in the context of attorney-client privilege. And so that's a very defined category of documents, right? There's communications between an attorney and a client. Uh, and there's no assertion of attorney-client privilege. I mean, it comes up in a, in a trial, but it's you can look at a document and decide, is this attorney-client information or not? And he, executive privilege is not like that. So there are, as you said, the first problem here is that the executive branch is trying to use this information in a, in a criminal proceeding. This is not a disclosure to Congress or disclosure to the public. And generally, executive privilege is designed to protect the confidentiality of sort of internal executive branch communications being disclosed out to Congress or, or to the public. This is an internal use of what are, I think, uncontestedly government documents under the Presidential Records Act. So there is uh, there's a line in the Nixon case that that she sort of cites for the purposes of giving the former president power, but ignores for other purposes that says executive privilege doesn't apply against the government. 
So that's the, there, there is, you know, sort of a very broad conception of executive privilege that would say even a president can even control where documents go sort of in the executive branch. But that doctrine is about sort of the current president. Yeah. So can I break this down a little bit? And yep. you, so the government's ability, the, the president's ability to say, I want this information to stay within the Justice Department or stay within the Defense Department, and I don't want anyone from the Department of Agriculture to see it. That is the right of information control within the executive branch, the president's right to control information, but it has nothing to do with executive privilege, right? I think it, I mean, so I think it depends on who you ask, but generally that is right. I think the way that the court has defined executive privilege is that there is this right of the president and potentially a former president, sort of unanswered question, but to keep information from being disclosed. And so the ability to sort of control information within the executive branch, maybe that's a corollary to it, but it generally is about the control of the current administration about how information gets pushed through uh, to various agencies and who gets to see what, similar to the idea of classification, who gets to see certain classified documents. It's a completely separate matter than the disclosure of information outside the executive branch. And so she has just sort of lumped those two together and allowed not only a a president, right? Now, this would be a sort of extreme if it were a president, but a former president, which is even more extreme, to file a, a civil suit against the government to prevent the government from using its own information, right? from accessing its own information. Executive privilege is about the governmental control of its own information. So it's really a fundamental sort of misunderstanding about priv what privilege protects, which is the harm from disclosure. Uh, and allowing that to sort of set up this injunction that prevents the government from even looking at its own documents. All right. So, Natalie, um, I want to ask you about a different aspect of this, which is the injunction against the use of this information for investigative purposes, assuming that there's privileged information there at all. The judge has uh, announced that there will be a special master to review that, but she's also basically prevented the government and joined the government from using the any information seized in the meantime. I have never heard of an injunction in a criminal investigation, a, a civil injunction against the government's use of information, and I'm not even sure I understand what it means. Does this mean that the government's not allowed to read the material? Does it mean they're not allowed to talk about it? They're not allowed to interview witnesses based on it? What does it mean to enjoin the Justice Department and the FBI against using information? I think no one knows. Um, I am not familiar with this having happened either. That doesn't mean that it hasn't, um, but it is certainly at the very least extremely unusual for a civil proceeding to have a direct impact like this on a separate criminal proceeding. I think that this will be subject to interpretation, frankly, and, and maybe something that DOJ tries to clarify either on review or perhaps in a motion to reconsider. 
but the the injunction does say that DOJ is enjoined from further quote further review and use of any of the materials seized from plaintiffs' residence uh, for criminal investigative purposes pending resolution of the special master's review process or by separate order of the court. But I think this actually raises. Um, I just wanted to sort of draw out another component of this, which is there are two separate legal conclusions that Judge Cannon comes to here that I think are quite remarkable. The first, um, Anna mentioned earlier, the, the Ritchie factors that uh, Judge Cannon goes through. That is for the purpose of determining whether or not she even has jurisdiction to think about this case, to consider it on the merits. In other words, to decide that she has a place and um, the authority to have a say in what's going on in a separate criminal investigation that is um, being overseen by a separate judge in a separate court. The second, then, is the question of whether an injunction is appropriate here, which uh, is subject to a legal standard that, um, interestingly, Judge Cannon provides for the Trump team, which really did not argue it appropriately um, by going, typically, if a party were asking for an injunction, they would go through the standard um, that is necessary to meet the injunction. And the Trump team didn't even do that. But she she went through a Rule 65 analysis. That's the rule of civil procedure governing injunctions and determined that uh, Trump would be subjected to irreparable harm if the special master did not have the ability to segregate out these documents that perhaps the FBI and DOJ should not have access to for investigative purposes because of either attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And it, it's just not clear that the irreparable harm finding is, is all that compelling, frankly. It's not clear to me why, for example, an appropriate remedy if, in fact, it were the case that some documents were um, should have been withheld, why the appropriate remedy wouldn't be later at trial to simply suppress certain evidence, which is often how things are done in criminal investigations. But there's there are just a lot of alternative um, remedies that the judge doesn't even consider, and frankly, the parties didn't delve too far into because this wasn't really at issue in the in the briefs. Yeah. So, Anna, how far beyond? I mean, one of the problems here is that the Trump people, their brief, as you pointed out earlier, bears relatively little resemblance to the uh, work that the judge did in this opinion. That is, their brief was kind of all over the place, and it's not clear to me was meant to actually produce a particular result rather than to vent and and but she actually converted it into something how far beyond uh what they requested did she really go i mean i certainly think that the it's probably the most telling part of how far beyond she went is the injunction part um the fact that they I believe at oral argument, they said, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt for you to go through a Rule 65 analysis or so, something along but those lines. She brought it up. She said, yeah, she, yeah, she brought it up and they said they kind of had this response that was like, well, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, you could do it kind, kind of like that. Um, and then, you know, she again brought it up 
to the government when, you know, when Jay Bratt came back up and he said, you know, I do think that you have to enjoin us if you're going to tell us to to um, stop the investigation. Um, so it, it was clear that, you know, she was going, as I said before, she kind of was doing some of their lawyering for them. And, and you saw, saw that a few times um, at, at different areas of, of her questioning. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it certainly went well beyond, you know, what the Trump team requested. And I think that that is one of the more surprising parts of, of the opinion. So at, at the risk of being a little nerdy, um, just to emphasize the, um, the standard here for temporary injunction, the first factor in a four-factor test is substantial likelihood of success on the merits. And the thing that's very strange about this injunction, Grant, is that it's really not clear the substantial likelihood of success on which merits, because the uh, the Trump team had had styled this in a relatively ambiguous way with a very brief mention of a possible future Rule 41G motion, which relates to um, evidence if it was wrongly obtained, a party can um, file a Rule 41, 41G motion asking for a court to order that evidence be returned. The Trump team didn't actually make a Rule 41G motion yet, but she seems to have found, I think, that he would have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits of a claim that he didn't make and really didn't argue. Um, and she doesn't articulate it as such. Um, she goes more into the other elements of a temporary injunction standard, which are the irreparable injury issue, um, and then sort of faints at the other two, which are a balance of the interest of the parties and the public interest. But the, the lack of real discussion and digging in on this first prong of substantial likelihood of success on the merits is really, really striking. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Jonathan, I want to, before we turn to what on earth is going to happen to this opinion, I'm interested in the question of how disruptive it is, uh, which a number of people have asked in, uh, in questions as well. On the one hand, you say, well, she's frozen the use of material. That's got to be very disruptive to a criminal investigation. On the other hand, it's, it's, it's really only 11,000 pages, so you appoint a special master, and presumably there are significant privilege questions about very few of them. You could actually power through this pretty quickly. And so my question is, is this a tempest in a teapot, or is this a serious uh, problem? So I don't see it as a serious problem for DOJ in terms of delaying the criminal investigation, you know, as you said, it wouldn't take that long, I don't think, to go through the documents. Uh, they can still do other things in the criminal investigation, you know, interviewing witnesses, and they just can't use these specific documents. And probably most of them, they have a general sense of what they are. So I don't think it's actually that big of a hurdle in terms of what DOJ is wanting to do right now. I do think the the larger hurdle is, you know, what happens if we just sort of leave this precedent out there? Does this give sort of fodder for future suits, either those involving Trump or even other criminal defendants? Is this sort of allowing the courts to interfere in 
criminal investigations, particularly when there's presidential records at issue, you know, in a way that we need to make sure it's not on the books, right? We need to appeal this all the way up to to get some clarity here and to to remove this bad precedent. So I, I don't see it as a uh, logistical hurdle at all in the investigation. I feel like there's probably some temptation to just let's get on with the master and move forward and not have to deal with the appeal. But I think this precedent is is so bad for the Justice Department that they uh, they're they're not going to want to do that. Particularly some components within the Justice Department, like OLC or, or the Criminal Division. Even if it's just a it's just a district court opinion in the Eleventh Circuit, it's not controlling anywhere. Why would that be such a big hurdle for them? Yeah, I mean, I, it is a district court decision, and the there's a number of you know contrary district court decisions out there that the Justice Department just largely ignores because it's a district court. But it is, uh, you know, leaving the opinion there and not appealing it is sort of inviting a future judge, particularly one who's, you know, sort of chosen uh, by by Trump or by another party as someone who would be favorable to kind of build on this opinion. So, But I think that's part of the discussion, right? It's just a district court opinion. Let's just move on. You know, we don't have to follow it. But I, I still think the precedent is bad enough that they're going to they're going to want to appeal and, and try to get it reversed. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right. So let's talk about that. I'm interested uh, for each of your thoughts, Jonathan, Natalie, and Anna, in that order. What what are their realistic options now? It seems to me you could file a motion for reconsideration. You could get a try to get a stay from the 11th Circuit, or you could just kind of appeal it while the a uh, special master is proceeding without getting a stay. What do you think is the realistic uh, option set in play now? And what do you think is the best option for them? Uh, so I think they're, you know, this, what we just talked about, these considerations of strategy, do we want to appeal, you know, getting the interested components for their views and department leadership. I think that's going to take a little bit of time and it's not an easy question so my guess is that they continue to sort of go forward in uh, the district court, submitting you know proposed names and the sort of procedural steps they need to take, while they're also deciding exactly the path they want to take. Um, I do think they may file a motion for reconsideration if they want to sort of buttress the record would be the reason for that, if they want to include another declaration in it or get some more evidence that's there. But maybe they seek a stay, you know, the 11th Circuit's not a very favorable court, so they're going to have to deal with uh, the equities are somewhat reversed now because for the stay, they're going to have to show 
uh, you know, the irreparable harm and likelihood of success on the merits. So they're it's it's switched a little bit. So I don't know what they will do, but I think that they're gonna you're gonna see them continue to sort of go along in the district court with what the procedures have been outlined as they consider the strategy. And my guess is ultimately they will they will probably appeal and seek a stay, but but not right away. Natalie, what do you think? Yeah, I I'm not sure that I can guess. Um, I think one possible route that would appeal to me to think about is to sort of segment out the attorney-client aspect, the attorney-client privilege review aspect of a special master's work versus the executive privilege review. For all the reasons that we've talked about, an executive privilege review is both unprecedented and a lot more complicated. It also, um, I don't know, maybe Jonathan can speak to this a little bit too, but I, I have found myself wondering also, you know, if there are, we know that there are classified documents um, among these documents, can those even be subject to executive privilege? If not, can we just sort of take that universe of documents and allow DOJ to continue working with those because we know that they can't be subject to attorney-client privilege? Um, Similar question with respect to documents that are unambiguously subject to the Presidential Records Act. You know, is there a way to basically start categorizing the documents as they exist and proceeding where it is uncontroversial that these documents will not be uh, properly removed from the ambit of the investigation while allowing a special master to adjudicate the possibility that some documents may be? Excellent. So, Anna, I want to ask you a, a specific variant of the same question, which is, did, did any of the Justice Department lawyers at the hearing the other day say anything that might presage uh, how we expect them to, to behave now? I mean, they did have a little bit of forewarning that this was coming in the form of the judge's preliminary order. So did they give any sense of, of how they would respond to such an order? They didn't give any explicit sense of how they would potentially respond, but I, I think it potentially is telling that Jay Bratt insisted that the Rule 65 analysis should be done and, and that the court would have to enjoin the DOJ. And, and I think that that potentially has to do with thinking about future appeals of the decision. So I, I think that that potentially is relevant, but I don't I did not get a sense of anything that would be telling in terms of where we're at now um, a, a, of exactly what the next step would be. All right. So let us imagine for a minute, Jonathan, that the government does not seek and receive an immediate stay. So it now has to. I guess as an initial matter, brief the question of who would be an acceptable special master, but it also has to maybe begin a process in which that special master would do the privilege review, both on the attorney-client privilege side and on the executive privilege side. We kind of know what that looks like in the in the attorney-client privilege context, but we, I think not since... Uh, Senator Stennis tried to do an executive privilege review for Richard Nixon in 74, have we had 
an outside arbiter of privileged material in the executive branch. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of what that would look like just mechanically? Yeah, so I think that's part of the part of the problem here, right? Is that, you know, executive privilege, if you if you think about it as like for instance, Congress does, it it only includes these communications of the president, right? So you can have a special master that is looking through the documents, thinking which of these represent communications by the president to senior advisors that would fit within the kind of information that the Supreme Court talked about in the United States v. Nixon with the Watergate tapes. Um, but the executive branch thinks of executive privilege much more broadly. And actually, attorney-client privilege, when you're talking about the president, is a part of executive privilege. It's what they call a component of it. So if you have a special master looking at executive privilege from the the Department of Justice's view, that includes even classified information, state secrets is another component of executive privilege. So there's there's very little guidance about, and there's a you know existing disagreement between Congress and the executive branch and scholars or different places about what kind of information falls within executive privilege. Does it include deliberative process information? There's a district court decision that says it does, but Congress disagrees. And the court basically sort of glosses over all this and just says uh, executive privilege will just appoint someone to look for it. But there has to be some parameters about what to look for, which is going to be contested by the parties. The special master needs guidance. And I think part of the decision about what, whether to appeal or how, how much of an intrusion this is going to be may actually depend on how some of those questions get resolved, if they do at all. Um, because if it's a review to say, is any of this potentially privileged? And it, it probably all is under DOJ's view, which is a, a broader view of privilege. But if it's just about presidential communications, well, that can be sort of set, sorted out pretty quickly. And then they can litigate what's privileged and what's not. But I think there are just an enormous number of questions that are still out there about what an executive privilege review means and whose view of executive privilege is a special master supposed to adopt. It would be a super ironic thing if then the Justice Department were to take a narrow view of executive privilege and have a broader view imposed upon it by a district judge, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be even, you know, I think the department's position is going to be, like, all of this is potentially privileged, but the privilege has to be asserted by the president. You know, maybe by a former president, but not contrary to a current president's view. President Biden has, you know, delegated this to NARA. He could have been more forceful in saying that privilege doesn't attach here, but he, 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 in the letter to NARA, he basically delegates authority. NARA consulted with OLC. So I think the Justice Department's view is, okay, all of these are potentially privileged, but none of them are privileged because there's been no assertion of privilege, which is a necessary step before you get to executive privilege. So another thing the special master has got to sort out about it, about privilege. Okay, so this brings me to, I think, my final question before we go to audience questions, which is, who the heck is a plausible special master for this? Uh, it seems to me that the person's got to be TSSCI cleared, so that limits the universe right there. You don't want somebody who's going to have to go through a clearance process. Person's got to be acceptable to 
the Justice Department and FBI, the Trump team and the judge, and the person has to be able to walk in with some capacity to resolve precisely the sort of issues, Jonathan, that you just identified. And so I'm, I guess I want to ask each of you, do you have nominees uh, to be the special master? Jonathan, go first. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have any uh, grand ideas. I, I've heard people say Judge Ludig, who, you know, obviously would be uh, a candidate who's got experience on the executive branch side and with privilege from his time at OLC and also you know, an Article Three judge uh, in the past. So someone like that would be an, an excellent candidate. I, I imagine it will be a retired judge for the sake of impartiality as well as, you know, for the clearance purposes. Uh, you know, I don't know that the person has to be cleared currently. I think they would have to be able to be cleared on very short notice, probably because of a prior clearance. But um, but my guess is, I mean, usually special masters are retired judges. So that would be my guess is that the court turns in that direction. Natalie, do you have any nominees for special master? I was thinking Benjamin Wittes, Jonathan Schaub, or Anna Bauer. Um no, honestly, I um, I don't, and I I agree with Jonathan. The only um, the, the only profile that I think makes sense is probably a former federal judge who has some experience on executive privilege, uh, but also has experience just in civil procedure, um, criminal procedure, uh, which obviously would fit a lot of judges. And it will have to be a very quick probably reactivation of an existing, a previously existing security clearance at the TSSCI level. But I do not envy whoever gets appointed. I think it's going to be a very difficult job. Anna Bauer, are you up for it? I <laughs> I am not up for it, but I do support Ben Wittes as the special master. Um, but... I am neither a lawyer nor have I ever held a clearance. So I think I get a buy on this. Okay, well, that's fine. I also not a lawyer and do not have security clearance. So I think I'm out as well. Um, but I do agree that I think that a federal a former federal judge is seems like a likely candidate. Um, although I was trying to pull up there was a letter that was written at one point before some of these motions, I think it was by national security counselors. Um, and there were some suggested potential special masters. Um, I have not been able to get onto the docket in time, though, so not able to say who those uh, potential candidates were. But that would be uh, an interesting letter to revisit in light of yesterday's motion. Yeah, I would just like to suggest that either former Justice Anthony Kennedy or former Justice Stephen Breyer strikes me as or Souter. Uh, I don't know what he's up to these days, but strike me as plausible in the sense of um, bringing a whole lot of gravitas to uh, the endeavor. I do like the Ludig idea very much. I think, though, that Judge Ludig, given his testimony before the 1-6 committee, is probably unacceptable to the Trump uh, team at this point. Though the the idea that he would that 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 Mike Ludig of all people would be acceptable to liberals anywhere and unacceptable to a former Republican president is a direction that I did not expect his career to turn. 
All right, it is time to go to audience questions of which there are a number and uh, they will be read and posed to us by Lawfare Associate Editor, Heyman Hahn. Heyman, the floor is yours. All right, so in keeping with this, who's gonna be the special master question, someone was wondering whether a current sitting federal judge could be appointed and if there's any rule against that. I believe, but anyone who knows this for sure should correct me if I'm wrong, that the nature of a special master position kind of precludes one judge from appointing another because the, 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 the nature of the position is that it is basically you're functioning as a evidence processing assistant to a federal judge. And so if you're uh, for purposes of discovery supervision or or some other processing of a large volume of information. And so if you're yourself an Article Three judge in that context, you know, there's a sort of question of whether you sit below the level of the judge who appoints you to be the assistant for that purpose. Is uh, So I think it would I don't know if the rule specifically forbids it, but I've never heard of it being done. Jonathan or Natalie, have either of you? I have not. Um, I don't know that there is a rule specifically against it. I think as a prudential matter, I mean, other judges have their own dockets to attend to, and this would be a very labor-intensive job. So even if there is not a rule against it, I would be very surprised if it has happened in the past. Yeah, similar. I'm not aware of it ever happening or uh, anything that would preclude it. But I think you're right, Ben, in the sense that the special master is a is basically a an assistant to the court. So it would be very strange to have a, a current Article Three judge being serving as an assistant to a, another current Article Three judge. Amen. Great. Another person wants to know if this gets appealed, what are the chances the 11th Circuit will just uphold this without discussing the substance? And what would it tell us if this is allowed to stand unmodified? So Jonathan, you are probably better situated than any of the rest of us to address that question. So I will leave it to you in the first instance. Uh, so I think it's pretty slim that they would not discuss the substance of it. Um, I think it, part of it depends on, you know, if it's a stay, then you might get less than uh, if it's a full appeal. It depends on how Justice Department frames it. But, uh, you know, if the 11th Circuit doesn't want to get into some of the thorny questions about privilege, I think there's other grounds that they could uh, approach this on, such as, you know, this was a abusive discretion and exercising equitable jurisdiction, you know, never should have entertained this kind of claim. So there's there's ways to avoid some of the questions about the former president's authority and what executive privilege means in this context if they want to. But I do think they would they would give us an explanation, whichever route they chose. All right. Someone else would like to know whether this appointment of a special master will have any ramifications for witnesses and whether their identities could be added to Trump or his attorneys by the special master, even inadvertently. Natalie, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure um, exactly how it would play out. I think there. I think the special master would have a fair amount of discretion on, you know, the procedure by which he or she is is going through the documents and and whether they are deciding to to turn them over to identify documents that may be subject to privilege um, or should be removed 
from DOJ's possession, um, in, in which case maybe that would identify some people. I mean, I have certainly also been concerned given a, a track record of, um, you know, potentially, and I think uh, validly construed as obstructive behavior um, from uh, Trump and, and others in his team, that this would have that effect on a chilling effect on witnesses, um, or just put other people in uh, potential trouble for their involvement, if any, in the investigation. Yeah, I will just say the risk of to witnesses of a special master seems to me low. The risk to witnesses of an Article Three judge who decides to supervise an investigation this early in the process super closely strikes me as high. That is, if the judge has jurisdiction to you know, get involved at this level of detail in supervising the the privilege dimensions of the material seized, you know, she also has similar jurisdiction to think about whether the warrant was defective in the first place, which does involve, you know, figuring out what the probable cause basis for the warrant was. Remember Natalie's earlier point that this is an assertion of jurisdiction on the basis of Rule 41G, which presumes an unlawful search, right? And so there may come a time when, you know, you have to do more than just sort of assert that the Trump has a likelihood of success on the merits. You have to, you may have to assert that there, you may have to actually show that there was something done wrong here, which by the way, there's no evidence that there was. And so I do think that the, you know, having a judge who inserts herself into this situation as aggressively as Judge Cannon has, has real risks to witnesses. They're just not through the process of the special master. Great, thanks. And one thing that Judge Cannon wrote in her order was that there is value added to having a special master just in terms of fairness or the perception of fairness. Could you all talk about whether you think that that's fair? And I mean, given how politicized this whole thing is, what's the downside of having another set of eyes to look over the privilege questions? Anna, do you have thoughts on this as an initial matter? I I mean, that's certainly the argument that the Trump team started out with and that they kind of made the theme of their arguments at at oral argument. I mean, I think that at the same time, like, it seems to me that it still doesn't really make sense if, if legal, especially on the executive privilege issues, that if legally, it it doesn't matter if about the appearance of fairness, maybe it does in terms of the attorney client privilege stuff. But if there's no legal basis for reviewing the executive privilege materials, then then I, I, I don't really see like how you get around that by just arguing fairness. That's kind of my gut reaction. I, I'm sure that I have a more a, a more articulate response uh, maybe later on, but um, that's kind of my initial thoughts on that. Jonathan, what do you think of uh, adding a layer of process for the optics and reality of fairness? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way to read what the the court is doing, right? Is to try to negate any any claims of bias that 
are, are coming out of the, the Trump camp by sort of bending over backwards to create this special master. You know, and I think to Anna's point, I just don't think the court understands executive privilege very well. And so this special master, she's sort of thinking of it just like attorney-client privilege, despite it being fundamentally different. And so it's like, okay, we do special masters for attorney-client privilege to have this, make sure there's an impartial reviewer. Let's do the same for executive privilege. That'll make sure it's fair. And I, I think that's just a failure to sort of listen to what DOJ is saying about executive privilege and to read about it and think about it that has sort of led to that error. Um, you know, I think if it's attorney-client privilege, it would be a totally different matter and perhaps sure we'll go have an impartial observer, but I think with executive privileges doesn't work in this scenario. Natalie? Yeah, I think I go back to the question of whether this is properly being done at all in the first place. I mean, it, it seems to me that what this is accomplishing is essentially bringing Fourth Amendment type challenges that is questioning the or challenging the the validity of the search warrant and the way in which the search was conducted through the vehicle of a 41G motion, which is supposed to be, as you said, Ben, the, the premise, the threshold question is that the search was illegal or improper such that the um, seized materials should be returned to the person who has a possessory interest in them. And, and it's a very odd time to interject because that presumes, and, and as part of 41G, which again, the Trump team didn't even really ask for in the first place, but the court construed as uh, essentially that was the motion that it was making to justify the need for a special master. The, the question became, or becomes to me, why is it necessary to return these materials in a manner that is is effectively putting the investigation on pause or potentially doing so um, when as part of a normal criminal proceeding, if there are challenges to be made to the validity of a search or the manner in which it's conducted, there are ways in which that is done. It's just not at this stage. Um, and I'm not sure what the urgency is that requires a special master to intervene at this stage when it's not clear to me why the Trump team needs these documents returned so quickly. And, and it, that just sort of seems to me a an excuse that is being used to basically circumvent the need to wait procedurally in the criminal context to challenge the, the nature of the search um, and how it was conducted. Yeah, so you've all been extremely diplomatic about this, and uh, I'm going to be much less so. Uh, no, it's a terrible idea to add a special master for fairness optics purposes in the absence of any real suggestion that there was anything wrong with or defective about the search. You can always say that this case is extraordinary uh, without actually it being legally extraordinary, by the way. Um, uh, and you can always say that, therefore, we should, as a matter of the equitable powers of the court, add a layer of review that the law doesn't, doesn't authorize. And the truth of the matter is that we don't say that for people who aren't powerful and important. And the fact that Donald Trump can uh, appointed the judge in question or uh, can muster a legal team to make threatening noises 
or, or pound the table a lot shouldn't change the basic rules. The basic rule is that if you want to do a search warrant, you go to a magistrate and you, you know, do this, go through the search warrant process. And that's exactly what was done here. And until there is some reason to believe that the terms of 41G have been met, she shouldn't be entertaining a suit on that basis. So I, I you know, call me the executive power hardliner here, but I, I, I think it's ridiculous for a federal judge to, you know, to say, well, I think this case is extraordinary, so I'm going to change the rules in order to add a layer of procedural review. And by the way, I'm going to stop the investigation uh, in the meantime. You know, they say that being a federal district judge goes to your head. This is kind of an example of that. And because I am both the most dyspeptic person uh, on this podcast and the moderator, I declare myself as having had the last word, and we are going to wrap it up there. Jonathan Schaub, Natalie Orpet, Anna Bauer, Heyman Hahn, thank you all for joining us, and thanks to everybody who joined in to listen today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, are you a material supporter of Lawfare yet? If not, why not? And what are you going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go to patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare, and you're going to fix the problem. You're going to become one. You're going to get the benefits. You're going to support lawfare, and you're going to love it. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. 